Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and this week I'm talking to Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, owner of Bug Lady Consulting, and she specializes in beneficial insects. Suzanne, how did you become the Bug Lady? Um, when I was in middle school, I became very, very interested in insects, and then when I went on to high school, I talked to my guidance counselor about uh, having a career in entomology, and they told me I would never get a job in that field and to pick another field, um, and that kind of pushed me even more uh, to, be to become an entomologist, and basically I went to college, I went to the University of Florida, and I have degrees in entomology and environmental horticulture, and somewhere along the way in high school, uh, my friends all started calling me the bug lady, and it's just <laughs> always stuck, and I just, this is always what I've wanted to do, and it's probably all I'll ever do. That's wonderful to find your career path so early. Now, you said you had a degree in environmental horticulture, too. Um, that, yes. I, I don't know anybody besides you that has a degree in both. Um, well, I had a really, really good advisor when I was in school, uh, Dr. Tom Weisling. He's now at the University of Nebraska, and he knew that I wanted to work with plants and bugs and the whole relationship. And when you go through school for entomology, you really don't get any plant information. And if you go through school for horticulture, you get minimal insect information. And what I work with, it's all so interrelated, plant nutrition, disease vectoring, along with insects and everything, that you really, to, to work in the systems I work with, you need to understand how plants grow and how to make them healthy um, to reduce incidents of having pest problems. So he sure. recommended that this was a better career path for me. I was actually in school seven years. Um, wow. And, uh, and this is where I've ended up. <laughs> well, people, I don't know that a lot of people know that having a healthy plant is one of the big keys to not having bugs. It, it is one of the essential uh, things about having, uh, well, having reduced incidence of insect feeding on plants. And there's more and more research coming out showing that we create often our own problems, um, especially in the landscape and garden, um, by one, uh, with fertilization. Um, mm -hmm. The fertilization recommendations are being way backed off these days, one, because the soil is pretty nutrient-rich already, um, and they've actually done some uh, compiled research. They've gone back and looked at the correlation between feeding plants and having insect issues. And more often than not, if you're pushing your plants to grow, you, you do induce insect problems. Yeah, is anybody that has ever fertilized their lettuce or something like that in the spring and all the aphids glom onto that really, really fast? Yes, well... It, 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 there are a few systems where actually fertilization does help, but the majority of them, uh, they're finding, does, does not. Um, in fact, even like with tree fertilization, and, you know, there are always exceptions. They're really backing off uh, fertilizer, you know, when you go out in the spring and you get your bucket of fertilizer and you put a ring around every tree. Because if you think about it, prior to us really developing fertilization, trees grew for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and there's a whole system with, you know, the leaves falling off, but now we remove the leaves that remove the nutrition. So it kind of disrupted that natural ecology that happens there. Yeah, people forget that Mother Nature didn't buy 10-10-10. Yeah, is I so see used that all the it. time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with working with the beneficial insects, 
um, a lot of what I do is inside of greenhouses or, you know, glass conservatories. And then people ask me, well, does biocontrol work outside? And then I'm like, that's where it all started. I mean, that's where we've learned from is biocontrol outdoors. Now, I've heard that 3% of, only 3% of insects are harmful and the other 97% are beneficial or neutral. Is that correct? Well, it depends on your matter of opinion. Um, and, you know, when an insect wakes up in the morning, it's not like, ooh, I'm going to be a bad bug or I'm going to be a good bug today. It all depends on perception, just like, you know, a weed is just a plant not in its place. Uh, you know, one of the examples I really like to use about this are praying mantis. Because if you ask most people, are praying mantises good or bad, most people will say they're good. I am not a huge fan of of mantis, especially I would never recommend buying them and releasing them. Because you think about mantids and how they eat and how they hunt, and they, they hunt by sight. And what they do is they perch on plants, and they catch things that are flying by. So they tend to eat... Hum, well, first of all, they'll, they'll take down hummingbirds, and you can find plenty of pictures and videos online of that. But they also feed on butterflies, they feed on bumblebees, they feed on honeybees, they feed on a lot of the pollinators. They actually, from a gardening standpoint, they don't feed on a lot of plant pests because a lot of our plant pests are things like whiteflies and spider mites and aphids and stuff like that. And the mantids don't feed on those so much because those insects on the underside of leaves or inside the flowers where the mantids really aren't going to feed on them. So if you're trying to protect your pollinators in your garden, it's really not good to have mantids around um, in the garden, and especially buying them and releasing them, and especially the ones being sold are most often uh, Chinese mantids, so they're not even originally native to the United States. Now, they're so prevalent, they're kind of everywhere now, but they're not, if you're one of these people that, you know, wants to do native gardening, they're, they're not native. I one time brought in a praying mantis egg case, brought it into my greenhouse, and I didn't know it was so close to hatching. And I went up for lunch, and I came back, and there was like a thousand praying mantises frantically trying to get out. And the ones that didn't get out got eaten by other praying mantises. Yep, that was kind of an that was an experience. Yes, I think, and I understand that. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think we've all done that. But, yeah, they, they will cannibalize. So um, how do you know if the bug that you're seeing out there is beneficial or not? What I tell people often to do is just take a second to stop and look and just make some observation. And, you know, a lot of what I've actually learned about insects through the years is just by doing that. Because when you're in school, they do teach you, about identification and how to identify things and basic biology, but they can't teach you every insect. So when I moved up north, I actually grew up in Florida, but then I moved up to Pennsylvania. Um, I had to learn all everything up here, and what I often do is just go sit in my garden and watch and watch what the insects is doing. Is it actually feeding on your plants? Um, how many are there? Um, not always, but, you know, if you tend to think about uh, herbivores, plant feeders tend to hang out in large numbers. Things like grasshoppers, things like aphids, uh, things like spider mites. You get high numbers of them where predators 
tend often not to be in high numbers because they are meat eaters, and then they run that chance of cannibalism, like we just talked about with praying mantis. If you've got a bunch of the meat eaters around, they're going to eat each other. So often, predators hang out in onesies, where plant feeders often can hang out in groups. And that's not always true, but that's one of the things I do, besides looking at their behavior. Um, and also just having a general idea of, you know, the groups of, of insects that are plant feeders. Um, often stink bugs can be plant feeders, but also a lot of the stink bugs are actually predatory, and they can feed on other insects, so they actually can be beneficial. So often it's just observation and learning, and then once you figure out about that one insect, then you know for the next time. A lot of people, I think, equate an ugly bug as a harmful bug, but that's not true, is it? No. Yes, no, I know. No. <laughs> when you see something that looks like a, a little lion um, on the back of your um, on the back of your leaf, or if you see a ground beetle. I once I, I used to work for extension, and I was in a lady's garden. And she had the most wonderful collection of ground beetles that, and, and I was watching them feed. And she came out and she went oh and started stomping them. <laughs> it's a uh, yeah. So what? So what other kind of insects are beneficial? Um, there's actually quite a few out there, and again, it, it's a lot of what you know I've observed too that I didn't even know always were beneficial. But one group that always gets a, a really bad rap are the wasps. Um, people, when you say wasp, people tend to think about the European paper wasp that builds the nest often in the eaves of your house and things like that. But there's so many wasps out there working for you. Um, a lot of them are the size of a pinhead. Um, so you often might mistake them for a gnat. But even the larger wasps, a lot of those paper wasps actually feed on things like caterpillars, and they're actually pollinators also. So if you can get past the whole stinging thing, then, you know, you think about what, what they do for you. They can pollinate and then control a lot of pests. Most of our aphids are kept in check by wasps. Um, one of the most classic examples you see in the garden um, are the tobacco hornworms or tomato hornworms. You get these mm -hmm. large green worms on your tomato plants. And then you'll notice that all of a sudden little white things start to pop out of their back. And what that actually is is tiny little wasps have come in and laid their eggs inside of the caterpillar. And then those wasps hatch, and then on the inside they eat all the non vital organs and so the caterpillar may still be moving and still may look fine but they're actually not feeding on the plant anymore because they don't feel so good and then eventually after these uh, baby wasps on the inside have eaten all they can they pop out the back of these caterpillars and, and spin cocoons on their backs and then those those little white things that you see, and then eventually a new little wasp will hatch out of that cocoon and go off and do that again. Uh, but often people mistake those white things on the back of caterpillars as eggs. But those are actually the, the cocoons um, that the wasps are going through their metamorphosis with on the inside. So it's important if you see those, do not remove them from your garden. I was actually in a commercial tomato grower one time, and he was having his employees pick all those caterpillars with the white things off to take them out of the greenhouse. But by doing that, he was removing all the beneficials that were controlling the pest caterpillars for him. I, you know, you have to wonder how they developed that ability to use another animal like that. 
everybody is eaten by somebody. Oh, Maybe. well, I guess that's a way to put it. <laughs> but but that's, you know, I, 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 that's a little different. This is like um, the the bug in the Amazon that that infects a spider, causes the spider to crawl up to the top of the tree, and then jumps out um, so it can populate itself. It's, it's kind of gross, yeah, no, but it's kind of fascinating. It's very fascinating, and, you know, they're discovering n- new new relationships all the time um, on how insects manipulate other things to do things and, you know, bacteria and fungus and all this kind of stuff. I mean, we, we've hardly scratched the surface on our understanding on the relationships um, between you know, how all these living things on the planet, and I don't think we'll ever fully understand everything. Well, that's one of the fun things about gardening and entomology and stuff like that because there's always something new that's being learned and that you can learn and and different observations you can make. Um, We're going to have to take a little break pretty soon, but when we come back, I'd like to talk to you about some of those new things. We're going to get to other things about beneficial insects, but I'm just while we've got a couple of minutes, um, if you can think of some of the most fantastic new things that you've heard. How's that sound? Sounds good. Okay. We'll take a quick break right now, but I want to remind you that you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we will be back right after this. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. Understanding health insurance is becoming more challenging. If you currently have insurance, you've probably noticed that it costs more to see your doctor. And if you were able to keep your doctor, it takes longer to get an appointment. The bad news is this trend is projected to continue. Your costs will continue to rise while your health care choice and access will continue to fall. The good news is Peachtree ENT Center has the answer to this problem. We are committed to working with you. We specialize in providing affordable care for patients without insurance, those who are underinsured, and those with high deductibles or catastrophic coverage. And we offer same-day appointments. You no longer have to choose between staying healthy and paying bills because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis. My guest today is Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, owner of Bug Lady Consulting. And right before the break, you were talking about some new research, and I want to know what what you're finding. Well, um, there's all kinds of interesting research going on, um, especially in the area of, of, of work that I'm dealing with, which is biological control, because I specialize in working with uh, insects that feed on um, pests that feed on plants so people don't have to use pesticides. And one of the most interesting things that has come out lately, well, that I find interesting, is that they've been really looking at what are called plant growth regulators. Plant growth regulators are often used 
um, to keep plants more short and compact so they look better in the store when they're sold. Mm-hmm. And what they discovered is that plants that have been drenched with these compounds, um, the pests that feed on the plants are not affected, but it's actually impacting some of the beneficials that feed on those pests. So it's actually using a, a plant hormone somehow is disrupting the biology of the beneficials by a feed-through where the pest insect picks up this plant hormone somehow and then it affects the beneficial. And then the beneficial insects um, can either hatch out or it's actually in some situations skewing populations male. And a lot of the beneficial insects, you need females because females are the ones that are the parasites and do the egg laying. So it's very interesting because we've never really considered looking how plant hormones can disrupt beneficials down down the you know the, the food chain there. That is amazing. That is yeah. Just, yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it's, it, that work is coming out of NC State, um, and it's something again that no one's really ever considered looking at because they've always con- considered uh, them safe because you know hey it's a plant hormone how can it be affecting insects but they are finding uh, that that is um, some other interesting research. Um, which I deal with a lot, um, is, is the interaction between how pesticides impact beneficial insects and predatory mites. And there's this feeling that if a product is, you know, approved for use in organic or it's an organically based pesticide, that it's going to be safe for beneficials, uh, whether it be insects or mites. But uh, some other research has shown um, azadiractin, which is uh, from the neem tree, and a lot, of, a lot of organic gardeners use neem oil, but the azadiractin actually can reduce egg laying in predatory mite species so that even though this compound going out is, you know, made from a plant and it breaks down really fast and it has, it's pretty safe for humans, it, it may not kill predatory mites themselves, but it actually reduces their egg laying. So just by spraying something like that, you can be causing an indirect result you may not be aware of. So, so what do people use if they have an infestation of mites? Most people, you know, turn to neem oil or horticultural oil. Well, what do you do? Well, still really, really good products. It's one of the situations, as long as you just understand what's happening, it's all going to be okay. You know, I, I would love to say we never need pesticides ever again in our lives. The reality is we do. We as a civilization would not be where we are without pesticides. I mean, that's just the reality of it. But if you understand, if you go out and spray a horticultural oil, which there's some excellent, excellent products out there, and you get good spray coverage because it's mites are going to be on the undersides of leaves, it just, it's going to kill anything it comes in contact with. So what's nice about a horticultural oil is basically once it's dry, new beneficials can move right in. So you don't have that long residue on there. Um, so that is something that uh, is good about them. Also, same thing with insecticidal soaps, not dish soaps. I, I do not support homemade dish soap uh, uses insecticides because dish soap is not insecticidal soap. Soaps come in different carbon chain lengths, and the stuff that is designed as an insecticidal soap is the right carbon chain length to be able to to kill pest mites 
and kill insects. Um, but again, once it's sprayed, comes in contact, kills what you're trying to kill, once it's dry, new beneficials can move back in. So it does have minimal impact on your, your beneficial population. Okay. And, and with, um, one of the things that I always tell my students when I was teaching is if you're using insecticidal soap and you buy the concentrate, more is not better. And then I have them look at the label so that they know that um, the same ingredient is also a weed killer. <laughs> so. Yes. Well, yes. Um, but again, oftentimes it can get into, again, carbon chain links on there and what, what, which, what is the actual chemical makeup of the soap. Uh, there was a really interesting study done at Longwood Gardens uh, several years ago um, where they looked at uh, the like tomato plants and for pest control on them using insecticidal soap compared to ivory. And what they found was that visually, when they treated the plants, they saw no phytotoxicity. And phytotoxicity is like when you spray a chemical on a plant and you, and you cause it to burn. Um, um, what they, they didn't see any of that visually. Um, but they got the same insecticidal control. But what was different is they actually found on the tomato plants treated with ivory that they actually had a lower tomato yield, even though the plants oh, looked the same. So there is uh, was a difference in there because, again, you know, these household soaps are not designed for plant application where insecticidal soap is. And people think, oh, because it says insecticide, it's bad. That, that's not true at all. That, that's just a labeling issue by the law. And also to explain what it is, it's a product that kills insects. And people think by using dish soap or detergents or, or any of that kind of stuff, that somehow all of a sudden it, it, it's not going to be as toxic. That's not not the truth. You have to use the right product for, for the right what you're trying to do. And people have to read the label directions and follow them, don't they? Yeah, they do, but you, nobody likes to read labels. I know that. So sometimes it's easier um, on subtle soaps. You can actually get them ready to use now so you don't have to do the mixing up. Um, but the concentrate is a much more economical way to go. If you get yourself a little bottle of, of insecticidal soap concentrate, um, it's very easy to mix up. It's generally about a 1% concentration um, on that. Um, but it's very easy to use, easy to clean up. Um, and, again, as far as impact on you, the environment, it's about the safest thing you can use. That's a good tip for people to know. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know why people don't read the labels. I, I take my magnifying glass with me if I'm going to the garden center, so that I can really get down and dirty. And then I read the label again before I use the product. Every right. time. Well, I think I, I think labels are very complicated. Um, there's because of all the precautionary information on there. Often the meat and potatoes of what people want often are buried in there, um, but understand, you know, you're dealing with a product that, that you know, can in, in the concentrated forms of anything, you know, can, can irritate your skin um, and also can damage plants if not used right. And that's why a lot of people have this misconception that insecticidal soaps burn plants or same thing with horticultural oil, that they get this phytotoxicity or get, they get the burn. Often what you find is they're not using the label, they're not using the product properly. They're misapplying it. 
So, you know, the more more is better syndrome, or and and watching out for temperature, I guess, is also a problem in much of the country. Temperature is an issue. Um, also, um, the again, we talked about the concentration level. Also, your plants make sure they're well watered before you do any kind of treatments to them. Because if you think about people, if you're going to go out and work in the yard for the day, you don't want to start off dehydrated because you're going to be feeling pretty bad. So you always want to make sure your plants are well hydrated prior to treating them. That will really help make a difference um, on that. And also there are certain plants that are more sensitive. You know, further in the south, you know, hibiscus can be more sensitive to things. Uh, sometimes orchids can. So, you know, you do have to read the labels to see if there are some precautionary warnings um, to see if, hey, you shouldn't use this product on uncertain plants because it can become an issue. What else do people need to know about insecticides? And are those the um, only two that you recommend? No, I actually recommend quite a few, but it really depends on what the issue is and also depends on what state you live in because products that are available sometimes in one state may not be available in another. Um, New York is, is very restrictive on the products that they use, um, that they're allowed to be labeled. Down in the south, um, you do have access to a lot of really good products. Um, Another really good product that uh, homeowners can use, the active ingredient in it is spinosad. Um, There's several brand names available for it. But what's interesting about this particular product is it is approved for use in organic production, um, and it it kills a a wide host range of pests uh, in in the landscape. It's normally used for thrift management, um, but that's something that's not often a homeowner landscape kind of issue, um, but what it's really good for are caterpillar control. And it's, it's a product that can be used, and then it's not going to impact most of your beneficials out there. It's pretty specific on the pest it does control. So you can use that to control caterpillars without really impacting a lot of your other beneficials, especially those wasps that are out there. Do you recommend that over BT for caterpillar control? Well, the thing, or are they about the same? Well, the thing with BT, it has been used so much for so long that we're having resistance issues with it, and that you're that's that's a whole issue in itself um, with the corn and the genetically engineered uh, issue and all that, but we are seeing more resistance to BT because it has been used a lot. Also, a lot of people don't use BT correctly. Um, it does break down pretty readily in UV sunlight, so actually evening applications are a bit better. Um, also, with BT, it has to be ingested into the caterpillar, and it actually basically works as a stomach poison, so it doesn't give people that satisfaction of, you know, seeing the insect, you know, People love, you know, I love the stories and people say, well, my daddy used to go out with DDT and spray this, and we just watched the bugs crawl up and fall off the plant. Okay, the, mm-hmm. the compounds today aren't going to work that way. BT actually can take a few days before the caterpillar actually dies, um, and people have to understand that that's how it works. The caterpillar ingests it. It works as a stomach poison. The caterpillar will stop feeding, but it will still be alive and wriggling around for a few days before it does die off. And also with BTs, you have to be aware there are several strains of BTs out there. There's BTs for beetles, there's BTs for caterpillars, there's BTs for flies, 
And actually, there's another new uh, BT that's coming on the market now um, that's going to be for the turf for beetle grub. So oh, you have cool. to make sure you get the right BT for your insect species. And that's why reading the label is so important on there. Wow. I, I just learned some more stuff. I knew about the old grub control things, but I didn't know that there was a new one coming out. We're going to have to take a little break right now, but when we come back, I'd like to hear some more about that. And you mentioned the different strains, and some people probably know the one for caterpillars and the one for mosquitoes, but I think they will find this fascinating. We're, you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show, and we'll be right back after this. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Hi, this is Tracy Pearson with Prissy Tomboy. The Prissy Tomboy radio show empowers females with confidence and belief in self through active, healthy lifestyles. Listen every Tuesday at 5 p.m. on America's Web Radio. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm talking to the bug lady, Suzanne Wainwright-Evans. And right before the break, she was telling us about the different kinds of BTs. Uh, and people have probably seen the BT for the caterpillars, and maybe the BT is relentless for the mosquitoes. What, but you said that there are some more things coming out there. Well, yeah, there's commercially coming to, to market. Now, the access to homeowners may not be available right away, but for people that are going to be treating your lawn for you, the commercial applicators can apply them. But there is um, a new product coming to the market called Grub Gone that is coming out of a company out of California, and it's specifically to target white grubs in turf and ornamental. And this particular strain really targets those beetle species. And what is really important about this is, again, it only is going to kill beetles and will allow the beneficials that are in your lawn to continue on. In the past, when people treated their turf for white grubs, the, the products that they were using were very broad spectrum, um, like the pyrethroids. Uh, Bifenthrin is a very commonly used one on turf. Another one is a metacloprid. The metacloprid, uh, neonicotinoid, which they know that's a whole other discussion, on, on the bee issues, but with those, those are a bit broad spectrum, so those will take out many different insects, including the beneficials, and that's something that we find in the landscape setting, that often people go in and target to kill one pest, but they end up knocking out all the beneficials, and then they actually can sometimes create worse insect problems. And what you don't want to do when you're treating for grubs is knock out the beneficials that are trying to control your grubs for you already because there are some wasps that will do that. There are ground beetles that will do it. Um, Oftentimes people don't realize that lightning bugs 
the larva, the immature stage of lightning bugs, live in the, the turf and ground right where those, those grubs are. And lightning bug larvae are an important predator in, in our ecology because they, they feed on things like slugs. But if you're going to go in with a broad-spectrum product and kill um, uh, a lot of the beetle species, you're going to end up taking out things like lightning bugs, which are a beneficial for you. So with these new, this new products, you know, they're going to be very targeted, this, this grub gone, that it's going to go after these white grub species in, in your turf. And so now everybody want, that wants to know where the lightning bugs that they grew up with have gone, now they know. Suzanne, tell us about some other other things that they might not know are beneficial insects. I think when people think of beneficial insects, you mentioned the praying mantises, which really aren't all that great. But um, and, and the other one that people think of is ladybugs. Tell them, tell them about yes. some of the other ones. Well, you know, we'll touch on ladybugs really quick because, you know, when people often find out, you know, what I do about, you know, solving people's bug problems by using other bugs, the first thing they always go to is, is ladybugs. And, yes, ladybugs are an important part of the ecology, but I really, really stress that trying to utilize your native ladybugs is, is so important. Um, what often happens, what happens often, though, is people think that they want to be organic or they want to control their pests naturally, and they go and buy ladybugs, which I think is one of the worst things you could do, especially in the eastern half of the United States, because people never stop to think about where those ladybugs are coming from. Those particular ladybugs, um, when you buy those red ladybugs that are in bags at your garden center or order them offline, have actually been harvested out of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Collectors go up with vacuums and literally vacuum them out of their hibernation sites and bag them up and put them in refrigerators and wait for people to order them. Um, there's a couple issues with that. Is One, from an ecological standpoint, you're displacing those beneficials from their native habitat. Number two, when you get them, since they've been hibernating, most of the time they're not that interested in feeding, so when you dump them out, they're going to just fly off. Um, there's actually been work done where they've painted ladybirds and released them, showing how they fly away. The only way you can make them stay is really if you cage them or enclose them on a plant. Um, the other issue, and this has been documented um, through research, is that they actually carry parasites and diseases in them. And so you don't want to introduce those into your garden that may attack some of your native ladybird species. So overall, I mean, I just think it's a really bad idea to buy ladybugs. Even though people do with the best of intentions, they don't realize the overall impact, and it's not that effective. I think it's much better to utilize your native ladybirds and your other native ladybirds, I'm sorry, other native beneficials you have around. Um, another great group of beneficials, and it makes people cringe, are, are the flies. Um, fly larvae, a lot of them are excellent predators. One of my favorite beneficials are, they're called the surfeit flies or they're the flower flies, and sometimes mm -hmm. they're even referred to as hover flies because the way they fly, they, they can hover in air above flowers and they have this very jerky flight pattern. The adults are often mistaken for bees because they can be red. I'm sorry, they can be yellow and black striped just like a honeybee, but they're not. If you look close, they actually have only one pair of wings because flies have one pair of wings and bees have two pair of wings. That's how you can tell them apart. But what these flower flies do is they come in 
which they are also pollinators. But when they lay their eggs, it's their larva that's predatory. And they've got these cute little tiny green or sometimes even brown. They're tiny little maggots that wriggle on the undersides of the leafier plants. And they're almost like little vacuum cleaners. And they go along and they grab pest insects, suck out the fluids of the pest insects, flick them to the side, and then keep going. And they're excellent, excellent beneficials. I, when I go looking for them in my garden in the summer, I can always find them um, out on my plants. I love watching them. I, I just love the way they fly, too. Now, yes, yes. what else are there out there? there and I'm going to put a link for everybody up on our Facebook page to a place where you can go and look at pictures of the, the adult and the babies because the baby, baby insects very often don't look at all like their parents, do they? No, not at all. And people often kill the beneficials, especially when they're in their immature or baby life stage because they think they're a pest. It happens so often. Um, it, it's quite sad um, that these beneficials are innocently being executed when they're actually trying to help you out. Um, I see this, this quite often. Um, one example is where people try to kill these brown aphids on their plants. Um, and when you see aphids that are kind of brown and almost papery looking, those have actually already been killed by wasps. There's some wasp species, um, and there's several genus of them. And they're actually uh, available commercially for sale, and a lot of commercial growers use them. They actually release these wasps, which are the size of pinheads. These wasps find an aphid, lay their egg on the inside. The wasp then eats the inside of the aphid. And when that happens, the, it, it kind of mummifies the skin on the aphid and makes it turn like a golden brown, sometimes black. And then they actually use the inside of uh, the mummy, I'm sorry, inside of the aphid as kind of uh, of, of uh, home for it to go through its metamorphosis. I always like to look for little holes in the top of big puffed up aphids. And then yes. I know that yes. somebody's been doing their job out there. Yes, I actually, I wrote an article several years ago, and I actually do this presentation basically called Holes, because a lot of the beneficials leave exit holes out of the back of insects. You'll see them out of the back of aphids. Another one is scale insects. I see people spraying for scales quite often, even though they're already dead. And the way you can tell if they're dead is when you take a hand lens and look close, and if you see circular exit holes out of the back of the scale, then you know that a parasite has been there and already killed it. And in those situations, if, if you still think there are living scales, you could come in with a horticultural oil because if you use something like a horticultural oil, the parasites are protected inside of the bodies of the scales as they're going through their metamorphosis. So using an oil is not going to kill your beneficials off in that situation, but it will kill the rest of the living scales. So it works extremely well, and oil with these native parasites can really help keep scales in check. That is an excellent thing to know, because I know a lot of people have a lot of problems with scale. Scale and spider mites, I think, are probably the two that we used to get most complaints about. Yeah, now, well, what other might... beneficial... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say something. You know, you're talking about research. Another very interesting piece of research that has, has come out... Um, has been on the um, relationship between a metacloprid and spider mites. Now, metacloprid is a chemical 
that um, has been used for many years. It's actually one of the uh, most used insecticides worldwide these days, and it's one of those neonicotinoids. There's been a lot of finger poking, um, pointing at it for issues with the bees, but we're not going to talk about that now. But what the research I've been very interested in is they found that plants that are treated with imidacloprid, even though imidacloprid is an insecticide, that means it only kills insects, it actually causes spider mites on those plants to live longer and have more babies, the females. So it actually can cause spider mite issues to explode. So here people use imidacloprid, and they commonly use it as a drench on plants to treat things like scales and aphids. Um, uh, in, in the landscape, they also use it a lot on turf to control um, uh, grubs in the lawn. But what they're actually finding, again, is these plants that are treated with metacloprid, again, it causes spider mite populations to explode. So you can actually create your own spider mite issues. So in, in systems I work with where spider mites are an issue, that's one of the things we do is we make sure, we make sure that compound is not used. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of research done at the University of Maryland um, out with the USDA and the West Coast looking at why this happens. And they've actually found that this particular insecticide, the metacloprid, actually works as a plant growth stimulant and makes the plant uh, actually more nutritious for the spider mites when they feed on them. So it actually is happening <laughs> there. So sometimes, you know, we just end up creating our own problems. I am so glad that you said that because I, when I was working for Extension, I could walk into a landscape and I can pretty much immediately tell if somebody had sprayed. You know, back in the day when I was at Extension, it was almost always seven. And after spraying with seven, there would be a big spider mite infestation. And spider mites are so much more difficult to control than aphids. So that that's a really good thing for people to know. And we need to yes. tell people how to not kill the – we've talked a little bit about not killing the insects. What other tips do, they, do you have for them, say, in their vegetable garden? I, I think one of the most important things that you can do with a vegetable garden is, is get away from the, the mass block monoculture. Um, this is, again, something that's been – readily supported by research, when you plant big blocks of monocultures, beneficial insects do not like to go there. They've done a lot of work looking at uh, woody shrubs and trees and things like that, and they found just by wringing these plants with things like shasta daisies, with echinacea, um, moonbeam coriopsis is one that's used quite frequently, just by adding biodiversity into the landscape or garden, it will attract these beneficials in that will in turn help control your pest problems. And I think this is really important to do is to add, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be flowering plants. Um, they've proven that the flowers aren't the keys to bringing beneficial in. It's, it's different heights. Oh, boy, i got to hear about that, but we have to take a little break right now. When we come back, I want to hear about that. We'll be right back sure. after this. Have you tuned in to the Master Gardener Hour lately? We have a brand new look. Come and join me, the new host, Kate Copsey, every Saturday at 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. 
Hi, this is Tracy Pearson with Prissy Tomboy. The Prissy Tomboy radio show empowers females with confidence and belief in self through active, healthy lifestyles. Listen every Tuesday at 5 p.m. on America's Web Radio. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's FoodLink was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and my guest today is Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, the bug lady. Um, and right before the break, Suzanne, you mentioned something that I had never heard of, and I'm sure most of our listeners hadn't either, that you can attract beneficial insects with non-flowering plants. Now, I know a lot of people consider butterflies um, beneficial, and, and certainly they're pretty and they're, they help out, but... That's the only one that I know that's attracted by um, non-flowering plants like fennel and dill. Tell us more. That's another really good example of beneficial, um, whether you consider it beneficial or not, because not everybody considers butterflies beneficial, because remember, they're caterpillars feed on plants. And, you know, if you're a commercial grower or a commercial farmer and butterfly larvae are eating your crop, they're going to want to kill them, butterfly or not. Um, so, again, it, it's ba- a matter of opinion there on that. But w- what, what the research has looked at is, again, as I mentioned before, they take plots of just one kind of plant and put it out. And then sometimes they even inoculate them with uh, pest insects on there, and then they monitor them. Then they, at the same time, do the same thing, but then they'll put beneficials around them. And what they found that even though they put flowering plants around them, if they pick off all the blooms, so you just have this, you know, uh, non-blooming coreopsis, um, they use cushion spurge, they'll use white clover, but again, not even allowing blooms on it. Just by having those plants around, they still had extremely high levels of beneficials, and whether they are blooming or not, did not impact the level of predation or parasitism by the beneficials. So just by breaking up the monoculture, and again, doesn't have to necessarily be flowering plants, even though flowering plants are pretty and, you know, you do want to have pollen and nectar out there, um, it's not an absolute requirement to, to have out there. Um, Purdue's done some great work. Cliff, Cliff Sadoff did that looking at... Um, they looked at euonymus and euonymus scale, and that was one of the situations where they planted all these different plants around euonymus shrubs that had been infected uh, with euonymus scale, and they actually got better control of the euonymus scale when they did not have blooms present on those alternate uh, plants around the outside. Again, things like the coreopsis and stuff. Um, the same work has been done uh, 
there was a National Research Institute grant at the University of Illinois where they looked at scotch pines and wintergreens. And again, by ringing them with these plants, with or without blooms, um, they found that the levels of the beneficials were ten times higher in the plants that had these alternate plants planted around them. So just by adding these plant again, the, the, the coreopsis, um, some of the, 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 the white clover, uh, goldenrod, they were able to attract in ten times more beneficials into their landscape setting than without those plants. That is a wonderful thing for gardeners to know so that they can attract more beneficials. Now, one of the things that a lot of people like to do is to go out and buy beneficial insects. And you mentioned that we definitely don't want to buy um, praying mantids or ladybugs. But there are some that are useful in the garden. What Can you tell us about those? Yes. Um, when homeowners are interested in, uh, you know, beneficials for the gardens to kind of, you know, if they're on a particular issue, um, one of the best generalists for the garden are actually green lacewings, um, which they're native to the United States. They're probably out in your garden right now already, but sometimes you need to boost the level of them. Um, benefic- uh, green lacewings are actually commercially reared in a they're called insectaries in California, um, and so they don't take anything from the ecology, and it's almost like being in a scientific lab in there, um, the, the way they rear them because they don't want any diseases or any other pests in there. And you can actually order and buy these green lacewings and release them out to your garden to help control um, a lot of the pests. And what's nice with the lacewings is you can buy their eggs or the larva. The larva is actually who does all the work um, in, in the life cycle of the green lacewing. They are the meat eaters. So by buying the larva, um, they're going to go out and they're going to feed. Also, the larva can't fly away because they don't have wings. Immature insects don't have wings. So you buy them, you put them out. They have to stay put where they are. So if you've got a concentrated problem, you can put them right in that area. They're going to stay and feed. Once they go through metamorphosis and become an adult, then they'll fly away. But as an adult, they're pollen and nectar feeders. They're not meat eaters. Um, and so then they can stay around, they can pollinate, and then they'll lay more eggs. Um, and they're a really good generalist for the garden because they, they love aphids. They'll feed. They'll actually feed on uh, spider mites. They'll feed on caterpillar eggs. They'll feed on young caterpillars. They'll pretty much feed on any soft-bodied insect um, that's... Uh, uh, that they can get their mouth parts around. And, and they can be cannibalistic, um, but you generally are putting out a high enough number, um, and generally they can find enough food that that's not as much of an issue. And they're pretty, too. When the sun catches their wings, the wings of the adults, they're absolutely gorgeous. Now, how about I, brown lace wings? Are they well, also... Brown lace wings are a little different. Brown lacewings are not commercially available in the United States right now. In Canada, yes. Um, there's someone rearing them in Canada, but they don't have the permit to import them into the United States because that's something people ask me all the time. It's like, oh, if you're releasing these beneficials, how do you know you're not going to create a bigger problem? The beneficials that are commercially reared are all highly regulated. You cannot just buy insects and just release them willy-nilly. Um, all these people that um, are rearing these beneficials um, 
have permits from the government. The research has been studied to show that these aren't going to create problems. Um, and so you can feel safe that if you're buying them through a reputable company, everything's going to be okay. Um, so that's why with the brown lace wings, you don't see them for sale down in the United States. But occasionally you can find them in the landscape. And the brown lace wings are a little different because the brown lace wings as adults will feed on things like aphids. So as larvae and adults are predatory. So they're, you know, you, you get a benefit on both sides of that, where, again, the green lace wings as adults are uh, pollen and nectar feeders, and those are the ones that are commercially available. Um, you can get them easily. There's a really good uh, company called Green Methods that they have their own insectary in California, and they really target the homeowner market. Um, because a lot of times when you research online about buying beneficials, you may end up with some of the commercial suppliers that are targeted more towards you know, large-scale agriculture. Green Methods was very helpful to me when I had a terrible fly problem one year when it rained and rained and rained and I had way too many chickens. And they were able to send me a, a special predator just for fly larvae. Yeah. And that they was just wonderful. Those. It took care of the problem in in just a matter of days, I think. Yes, they produce those out in California. Um, I've actually been to their rearing facility, and it, you feel like you're almost like in an Intel microchip lab because it's not what you think it would be. I mean, it's, it's pristine, clean. They have all these doors with air seals and everything because, you know, it, it, it's, you have to be clean to produce insects, as crazy as that sounds, because you don't want other insects getting in there. You don't want diseases getting in there. Um, they're one of the, the, the top producers, I would say, in the U.S. And what's good about them, and this is something else I find very important, is, is they are, um, they, when you buy from them, they are the producer. A lot of times when you go online, as a homeowner to buy beneficial insects, you're actually buying from a distributor that's buying from a distributor that's buying from another distributor. And sometimes those insects have passed through too many hands. When you buy from Green Methods, they're going to come straight to you from the insectary. You're also going to get better pricing because it hasn't passed through so many hands. Um, but those insects are shipped right to you then from California. So you're going to get the freshest possible insect. Because you think about it, it's just like any other thing. You know, if you're going to buy chicken eggs, you don't want chicken eggs that have passed through four hands that have been, you know, shipped all over the place. You want them to come directly to you from right where they were produced. Um, and oh, especially since it's a living product. You know, you don't yeah. want something that's going to be in transit for, for weeks and weeks. So some of, you know, some of them you can just refrigerate it and it will stay there. Just like I found a very, a, a very longly held brown marmorated stink bug. I put it in a jar a month ago and I needed the lid yesterday for trapping a cat and to put food on and doggone if that thing wasn't wiggling as soon as I, I had, had the jar in my hand and it was wiggling as it warmed up. Yeah. Well, speaking about brown marmorated stink bugs and other stink bugs, what's, I know a lot of our listeners are having trouble with them. What are the best controls? Well, to accept the fact you're probably going to live with them forever, um, that's the first thing you got to do because, I mean, they're, they're here. But they seem to come in waves. The brown marmorated stink bug has definitely been greatly reduced in the northeast. But now you seem to be having a wave down through the Carolinas and down through Georgia. 
Um, mm-hmm. The best things you can do, and, and there's two, two issues with the stink bugs. There's the one, there's the feeding in the garden, and two, there's when they come in your house to overwinter. And the, the house issue, the main thing to focus on there is exclusion by caulking your windows and not having crevices for them to be able to get into. Because what happens is weather cools down, they want to hibernate. You think about them like bears. Bears go into caves. The stink bugs kind of do the same thing where they go into cracks and crevices and they mistake your house as overwintering sites and they get crammed in there. And that's why during the winter months you'll find a stink bug here and a stink bug there because they've worked their way so far into your house or now in your living space when actually they just wanted a crevice to overwinter. But when in your house, they're not actually feeding. They've done all their feeding through the summer, and during those winter months, um, when they're chilled down, they live off their basically their, their stored energy. So they're not actually eating, and so that's why they can seem to live for so long without a food source in the, in the winter months. Um, well, wow. so we're just going to have to learn to live with them out in our garden then, huh? Well, the, we've only got about a minute and a half here, Suzanne, but if you can get the, that information to me, I'll put it up on our Facebook page, and anybody can write to me in care of America's Web Radio if they have a question, if they are not on Facebook and they need the information. But now, Suzanne, you also have a website that has some helpful stuff. Will you tell everybody what it is? Um, yes, my website is just bugladyconsulting.com. Um, and I do have a section in there for homeowners, and I also do keep um, a list of the lectures I'm uh, doing. I'm actually doing in the Northeast a lot of homeowner lectures over the next few months. Um, I traditionally work with commercial growers more, but I am doing a bunch of homeowner stuff to help get them educated on uh, the beneficials and also how to protect their pollinators in their gardens. Oh, we could do a whole show on protecting pollinators, couldn't we? Yep. All right. Do you have any one last hint for people? We've got about 30 seconds here. I just don't kill it unless you're sure it needs to be executed. I strongly believe in bug karma, and, you know, all those insects are an important part of the ecology. Just know what you're killing before you kill it, because oftentimes you're killing innocent beneficials out there. Okay. Thank you so much for being with us, Suzanne. It's been a pleasure, and I I hope we can get you back again sometime talking more gardening here on America's Homegrown Veggie Show. We'll see you next week. 